Wanted to live in a neighborhood with you, so let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, "Could you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor?" Hello, neighbor. You know, I'm especially excited about our time today because we're going to look at a story about neighbors. And I hope that we're going to learn a lot and be encouraged. So I'm so glad that you're here. Are you ready to go? Let's, let's go. How many of you grew up on Mr. Rogers? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am a huge fan. I had to take off the sweater. I'd die of a heat stroke. Uh, Fred, Fred Rogers was a remarkable man, remarkable human being. And uh, interesting, two things that he did. One was he really championed the dignity of everybody, like no distinctions, right? And then he also just, he had this incredible heart for helping children process life and particularly deal with their emotions in the face of a broken and scary world. And I was one of those kids. Uh, there was a lot about my life that was really hard and really scary and really confusing. And I remember having the fondest memories sitting in front of that television with Mr. Rogers. I don't know why I'm getting so emotional, but just thinking about, that was this safe place and uh, so encouraging, so assuring. Um, I guess many of you probably had a similar kind of experience. Uh, Fred's intent was captured within a commencement address that he gave in 2001, just two years before his death. He said this, when we look for what's best in the person we happen to be with at the moment, we're doing what God does. So in appreciating our neighbor, we're participating in something truly sacred. I like that. That was certainly his heart. So he was nothing short of inspirational, but he was definitely not invincible. 
There was a documentary that came out in 2018 about him and his program. And it was great because uh, it, it kind of pulled back the veil on him and his life and in the best sort of way. And like we all realized that Fred really was the same guy off screen as he was on screen. And that was so refreshing. But you know, there's this interesting moment in that documentary that uh, sheds some light on him as a man. Uh, Near the end of his storied life, literally days before his death, he asked his wife a very curious question. He said, am I a sheep? Now, the reason he asked the question is he had just been in Matthew 25. And in that passage, Jesus is teaching about the end of all things, the judgment time, and the picture there is painted of a separation of humanity between sheep and goats. And the kind of the characteristics that are attached to those two groups really uh, sounds a lot like works. And so as he was reading that passage, it sounds like he was troubled, and he asked his wife, am I a sheep? Which really might have been to ask Am I good enough? Now, I don't know if you struggle with that question. I have a hunch that you might. Many do. But I want you to think about that for a second. Think about that question. Am I good enough to be right with God? How do you answer that question? What's the standard? How will you know for certain, okay, I I finally crossed the line. I finally did enough. And now I can just, rest easy? Or do you spend every moment of your life working, working, striving, pushing again and again just to make sure? It's an important question, but it is so big. It's it's not helpful for the reasons that I think we might believe. Um, The question is, how good is good enough? And I think this passage is actually going to help us answer that question. It's found all over the Bible, but we're going to get into a classic place here. Um, Luke 10 contains one of the most famous parables in all of the New Testament, uh, those that Jesus told in the Gospels. Um, It's also considered one of the most abused and misunderstood parables. And here's why. When you think Good Samaritan, that's the parable that we're going to study today, you might think, well, the big idea here is to be a good neighbor like the Good Samaritan, right? That seems like the most natural, obvious application. But it's a parable. And the context around that parable seems to suggest that that wasn't really the big idea that Jesus was trying to convey. So let's look at it together and let's make sure that we come away from this passage and particularly this parable with all that Jesus intended. Now, we're coming out of um, Luke's record. Remember the last couple of weeks, Jeff and I have been talking about the sending out of the 72 disciples, right? He sent them out to do ministry, to go ahead and prepare those people to meet Jesus. They come back. He gives them instruction and encouragement and assurance. 
And then he mentions to them at the end of last week's passage, we heard that he highlighted the blessing that it was for them, his disciples, to see and hear everything that they could see and hear. And then right out of that passage, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to introduce us to a character who doesn't seem to see or hear very well. Look with me at verse 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a lawyer, but not in the same sense that we understand today. He's not a legal attorney. He's actually an Old Testament scholar. He is an expert on Old Testament law. He is very familiar, especially with the first five books of the Old Testament. It's called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those books were given to Moses and he gave them to Israel, basically saying, hey, everybody, this is how God wants us to live, okay? So it was called the law. He handed that to them. This guy is an expert on the law. We're told his motive was to put Jesus to the test. Now, let's not be too hard on the guy. Um, He didn't have all of the information that we have now. He just has run into this guy who's doing some interesting things and saying some interesting things, and he's not really sure if he's the real deal. So he is going to put him to the test, try to catch him in a contradiction if he can to prove that he's a fraud. That is the motive. That's the intent of this lawyer. And it's interesting, he asks a question similar to Fred Rogers. It's not, am I a sheep? It's not, am I good enough? It's, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, he's thinking just like that Old Testament law. There must be some kind of recipe that if I'll just follow it, if I'll just do exactly what it prescribes, then I'm good with God. Let's see what Jesus says to him. I think he wants to help this man see and hear what he doesn't see and hear. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Great question for a lawyer. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, this is what Jesus said after that, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, the lawyer uh, appeals to two pillars in Old Testament law. He comes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This was part of the great Shema. Every Jew quoted this twice a day. When they started the day, when they end the day, they say this every single day. So they know this is part of the prescription. Then the other part of the prescription is in Leviticus 19, 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, 
but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then Jesus says, yep, that's it. You got it. Go to it. Now that ought to trouble us because it sounds like Jesus hears the law and this guy just said, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And basically he said, yeah, just obey the law as if that could be done. So then we, 2,000 years later, it starts to get a little confusing. Well, wait a minute, I thought salvation was by grace through, through faith. What's this law thing? What's it, what is going on here? Well, here's what you need to understand about the law. See, the law isn't something that you, you kind of give it your best shot. And if you miss it a little bit, it's okay. See, the law is black and white. The law is all or nothing. There, there's no wiggle room. So what Jesus says is actually true. Yes, if you do those two things that you just quoted, you're good with God. But what if you don't? I think Jesus is trying to expose the lawyer's need for a savior. Here's three things you need to know about the law very specifically. It demands perfect love. Perfect love for God and for neighbor. All of the time, every moment, no exceptions. You can't make a single mistake. That's what the law demands, okay? Perfect love. Secondly, the law exposes humanity's guilt. See, it holds up this standard. Remember, we were saying how good is good enough. So the law says, let me tell you, it's perfection, which you'll never, ever accomplish in your lifetime. You're guilty. That's what the law does. Lastly, the law wasn't sent to save. See, it was never meant to provide a way of salvation for humanity. It has very different purposes. Let me give you some New Testament passages that reinforce these ideas. First of all, in James 2.10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one point, they become guilty of all of it. Man, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? That's the law. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, the law exposes humanity's guilt. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, no one, no one will be justified. In Galatians 3.24, the law was our guardian or tutor or guide until Christ came in order that we might be justified not by our obedience. 
but by our faith. I think the goal of Jesus in this exchange was to decimate every person's faith in their own ability to justify themselves before a holy God. Let me say that again. I want you to think about this context, this exchange that's going on. I don't think Jesus is trying to tell the lawyer how to live a better life. I think he is trying to absolutely destroy any shred of faith that man or anybody else might have in themselves. Now, we would hope (laughs) that the lawyer would hear all that, see all that, if he can see and hear, and he would go, oh my gosh, how am I going to do that? That's impossible. This is ridiculous. Somebody has got to help me. And Jesus would go, yes, yes, you're seeing, you're hearing. You need help, and I can help you. But instead, he doubles down, and he deflects the implications of what he's already heard and brings another question to Jesus. He's not going to give up easy. So in verse 29, he says this, desiring to justify himself, so we're getting to peer into his heart, He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So I'm assuming that this guy feels like he loves his neighbors pretty well, at least anyone who qualifies as a neighbor. And what he's trying to do is figure out who doesn't qualify as a neighbor, kind of a non-neighbor. And then I don't have to love them. I'm off the hook with them. I just got to love the people that our neighbor. So who are they? Which ones are they? Just point that out to me and, and I can do it. That question is what prompts the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now let's read it. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back familiar story. Keep in mind, it's a story. It's fiction that Jesus created in order to deliver a message. We just got to make sure we get the right message. So Jerusalem to Jericho, that was a common 
path of travel. It was 17 miles long. It dropped 3,300 feet in elevation. It was very treacherous. Lots of crags and caves and places where robbers could hide, wait out for travelers coming by, and then attack and uh, take their stuff. It was literally known as the bloody way because of how dangerous and violent it was. So Jesus chooses that pathway on purpose to create a setting that's got a lot of intensity attached to it. Then he introduces these characters. The first one is a priest. So just imagine, again, you're an expert in Old Testament law, and the disciples are sitting around, and maybe there's some other folks listening in. And he says, okay, so this guy gets attacked, everything's taken, he's beaten and left for dead, and a priest comes along, and what we would expect is, hallelujah, that guy is going to be saved. Surely that guy is going to take care of him. He, like he works in the temple. He knows God. If anybody's going to take care of this guy, he will. But Jesus constructs the story to expose the superficiality of those religious leaders. And he says he, he actually passes by on the other side, gets as far away from that poor fellow as he can, and goes on, leaves him. Then a Levite comes along. Now, Levite's a little further down on the food chain in the temple leadership. Still a religious guy. Another guy we would expect to care for this man, and he does the very same thing that the priest did. Now, if you're sitting around listening to this story, you're kind of going, Jesus, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense at all. And he's like, just wait. (laughs) Guess who else comes along? A Samaritan. Do you know what Jews thought of Samaritans? Half-breeds? Just a sad excuse for humanity. An embarrassment to God and Israel. They intermarried with other foreign nations, set up their own temple, bunch of heretics. Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jews. Jesus says, this Samaritan comes along, and they're thinking, he'll probably kick the guy on his way by. Nope. He goes right to him, probably kneels down and takes him in his arms. Cares for me. Like he, he felt compassion for that guy. He loved him, lavished care for him. Just blows everybody's categories. And then after delivering that very engaging story, Jesus asks another question. He says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So he's saying, you know, I know you asked about who your neighbor is. I'm going to flip that a little bit, and I'm going to ask you about being a neighbor. So which of these three was the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one, he can't even bring himself to say Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. 
Jesus said to him, this is just like he did a moment ago, you go and do likewise. So this is where this parable gets a little bit twisted because we think that he's, he's again saying, listen, if you'll just love your neighbor like this Samaritan that I just created and told about in this story, if you'll just love your neighbor like him, you're good with God. And in fact, that, that was the furthest thing from what Jesus was trying to say to him. He's trying to say, listen to the story. This is a Samaritan. He has no reason in the world to stop and help this man. He, he can probably figure out whether he's a Jew or a Samaritan. He could say, we kind of hate those people, don't we? But look at how lavishly he loves this man. A great sacrifice, credible compassion. How did he love? He saw the need just like the priest and the Levite. He felt the need. He had compassion, which is this deep kind of guttural emotion. And then he met the need. Again, at his own expense. So this Samaritan is a picture in the story of what it's like to love your neighbor as yourself, and it begs a few questions for us. Who loves like that? And once again, we're not talking about one time. We're not talking about a heroic act of love that just happened, you know, five years ago, and it was just this amazing moment where I just, I just found it within myself. I'm saying, he's, he, he's saying, this is the kind of love that the law demands you show every day, every moment, all of the time, without any flaw at all. He says to the lawyer, if you can love like that, you're good with God. And once again, the man should have fallen face down and begged for mercy. For us, we could say, what would we have done if we were walking down that road, saw that man? Would we have loved perfectly? Have you ever passed by on the other side? I have. What does your lack of love tell you about your need? See, now we're really getting down to it. This, this story isn't meant to discourage you except your trust in yourself. But if it breaks you of your trust in yourself and causes you to transfer your trust into someone else, then it's done its job. This moment is similar to a couple of other moments in some other Gospels. So there are four Gospels, right, in our Bible, and there are a number of stories told, and not all of those stories are told in every Gospel. But there are some similarities here. The, the Good Samaritan is told only in Luke. But in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, there's a story about an interaction between Jesus and a rich young ruler. Maybe you've heard that one. 
So this guy comes to him, similar to the lawyer, trying to justify himself. He's like, you know, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And he talks about the law thing, and it brushes right by him. He's like, oh, yeah, I did all that. Okay, go sell everything. I mean, everything. And then come follow me. And it says the man went away sad because he had lots of stuff. He couldn't part with it. He was trusting in his stuff. Jesus was saying, I want you to trust in me. Nicodemus, Jewish priest, came to Jesus at night, John 3. Similar question. And Jesus knows right where to go and says, you know what, Nicodemus, you are a righteous guy, man. I mean, you, you got it going on, but you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is going, well, I don't know how to do that. That's kind of outside my ability. And Jesus is like, exactly, that's the point. You can't do it. You need God to do something in you and for you that you could never do for yourself. And if you get that, you're going to get the gospel. You're going to understand what's going on. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is less about how we behave and more about our inability to live as God intended without his intervention. It's like the demand reveals our need and points us to the one who can meet our need, the one who can give us help. Remember, the goal of Jesus in this exchange is to decimate every person's faith and their own ability to justify themselves before a holy God. You just can't do it, and neither can I. And the Samaritan story shows us just what help looks like. See, we often hear these stories and we try and find ourselves and we go, oh, we need to be like the Samaritan. No, you need to see yourself as the man on the side of the road who's half dead. That's where you need to go in the story and then recognize that this outcast, the most unlikely of characters comes along and lavishes his love on you. Look at how he does it. We're beaten, bloody, half dead on the side of the road, and Jesus is full of compassion. He bandages our wounds. He figuratively pours, pours oil and wine on us for healing and restoration. He carries us to a place of shelter and care on, on him and assures that our debt is paid in full and it will be settled up when he returns. That's how we need to understand this story and it, and it leads us completely away from self-reliance. The reality is we are loved enough, we're just not good enough. And if we get that, it changes everything. Is it good to love like a Samaritan? Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> that would be a good thing to do. Is that the basis for our justification before God? Absolutely not. 
Is love like the Samaritans what we would hope to see from one who has been justified by grace through faith in Christ? Yes. See, that's the order of things. We we don't need to be working on the application of loving well until we understand that we have first been loved. But we get those out of order, don't we? And we spend our lives trying to barter with God trying to somehow do enough, be good enough so that he'll say, okay, that, you did it. Great job. Come on in. And he'll never say that based upon our own merits. He'll only say that if we have first placed our trust in Christ. Again, transferred our trust from ourselves to the only one who is trustworthy. Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 19, love it. We love because he first loved us. Don't ever forget that. And please don't ever tell anyone any different. We've really got to get that and take that in. You know, Fred asked his wife that question, am I a sheep? And I, I think it's fair to assume, I can't, I can't know what he was thinking at the time, but I think he really was wrestling with this idea, am I, am I good enough? Did I do enough? I'm at, I'm at the doorstep of death. I sure hope <laughs> I'm bringing enough with me to make it okay. And his wife had this golden opportunity to respond to him. And I'm, I'm not trying to be hard on them. I'm just saying, let's, let's just hear it for what it is. Here's what she said. Fred, if there ever was a sheep, you're one. <sighs> Man, that feels like she's saying you were good enough. And wouldn't it have been better for her to say, Fred, man, I love you so much. You're an awesome, awesome guy. And you have done so much good in this world. But, you know, the only way that you and I can know whether or not we're a sheep is whether or not we have placed our faith in Christ. That's your hope. It's not in how good of a guy you've been. And, I mean... Are there many guys better than Fred Rogers? It's not good enough. I I really hope that as you leave this passage, I hope that you'll chew on it. And I want to ask you to, to reflect for a few moments, maybe a little longer than we might normally have for a so what, but I, I... Here's what I I know in the South. We really do get kind of caught up in the whole works thing, and it can be kind of out of sight. We we just want to be moral and kind and nice, and and that's all good as long as it is the fruit of a vibrant faith in Christ. And so what I want to ask you to do before the Lord, this is between you and him. I want you to say, Lord, am I trusting in me? 
or am I trusting in you? Because I just know I'm never going to cut it. And there may be somebody here today, and that's totally good. I'm glad you're here. You may say, I have never, ever placed my faith in Christ. I've always been trusted in me. I mean, I come to church, and I'm a good person, and I give to good things, and I do all this stuff, and you've never placed your faith in Christ. What about today? Just say to him, just I, like I'm at the end of myself. I, I see that I'll never, I'll never measure up. So Lord, would you do for me what I can't do for myself? Please forgive me and bring me into relationship with you. However the Holy Spirit is prompting you to respond this morning, I want you to do it. And if you have questions, if you need to talk more about this, Jeff and I and our staff or whatever, we are more than, like there's no other conversation I'd rather have than to talk about how we can be right with God and then walk in the beauty of that relationship. So take a moment, listen to God, and then respond in whatever way he uh, leads you to, okay?